Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, March 31st, we are studying John chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. In today's text, Judas brings soldiers to arrest Jesus, but the Lord is not an unwitting participant. Jesus goes willingly to his passion for the sake of sinners, and he does so according to his Father's will. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor James Preuss. Pastor Preuss serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you. As we get started today, Pastor Preuss, help us with some context. We've been with Jesus on Monday, Thursday for quite some time in John's Gospel, hearing him give the farewell discourse, a prayer at the end of it. What should we know about the context that'll help us begin to look at the Passion, according to St. John? Well, Jesus is in the uh, Mount of Olives. He's now uh, entering this garden. He has just instituted the Lord's Supper, although John's Gospel does not uh, record that, uh, and he's washing his disciples' feet. He has this upper room discourse with his disciples, and then uh, chapter 17, of course, is the high priestly prayer, uh, which are very beautiful words that Jesus speaks, uh, where he it makes very clear that he knows exactly what's going to happen. He's glorifying in his Father's will, and he's praying for his disciples and for all who will uh, who will believe in him through through their words. Uh, so the, the first word that we read is when Jesus had spoken these words. It doesn't necessarily mean immediately after he said this, because uh, if we, when we look at the parallel passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he all, it says the same thing. He, he speaks to his disciples, and then it says that when he had said this, uh, that's when this, this group uh, comes. So uh, anyway, so this is, uh, uh, that's the context. They just had the Lord's Supper. Uh, Judas has hurried away, and Jesus has said the words that he wants to say to his disciples, and then he has uh, said the words that he wants to say to his father before he now enters the most difficult part of his life. Mm. So in terms of the way that we often think about the narrative of the Passion, especially as the synoptic writers record it for us, where whereabouts are we? I mean, we're in terms of like say the prayer that Jesus speaks in the Garden of Gethsemane, is this is what we're reading in John chapter eighteen? Is that likely coming like right after that prayer? Is that how we should kind of put these things together? Yeah, I think I think John uh, passes over it. So John gives lots of details that the other Gospels don't give. Like they don't give the high priestly prayer. They don't have the long, uh, you know, monologue that Jesus gives to his disciples from uh, chapters 14 through 16. Uh, it just says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the kitchen valley. There was a garden which he, which 
she and Michael Bennett. So presumably at that time, that's where he takes Peter, James, and John, and then goes to Stone's throwaway. That's where he's wrestling with, with God, sweating blood, and an angel comes and assists him. That's where he returns three times and says, are you still, or are you sleeping? You know, uh, pray that you will not fall into temptation. So uh, John just kind of skips over that, that part of it uh, because it's been covered by the other uh, Gospels. All right, so we are on the night of Monday, Thursday then. Let's go ahead and read the text as we hear what John writes in chapter 18 of his Gospel account. We're beginning at verse 1 of that chapter. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. That is our text for today. That is John 18, verses 1 to 14. Okay, Pastor Preuss, you talked a little bit about the context already there in verse 1, how this fits into the, the narrative that we know of, of the Passion. What about the setting? You're going across the Kidron Valley, there's a garden. This is Gethsemane, even though he doesn't name it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, we, we get other details filled in from the other Gospels. So in Matthew chapter 26, uh, it says that he is, well, let's see here. Uh, that's when he goes into, oh, I just thought before I, before I spoke, we kind of look at where he says the, uh, the name of the place. Well, anyway, we, oh yeah, Mount of Olives. He's in the Mount of Olives. And, uh, where does it give the name Gethsemane? First, I'm looking at Matthew 26, 36. Matthew tells us it's a place called Gethsemane. And there we go. Yep, that was right in front of my eyes. There you go. Good. So then my assumption is that Mark, the Mark, yep, Mark uh, is 1432. It's called Gethsemane. And then Luke, uh, Mount of Olives. Uh, and I don't know if he says Gethsemane there. But he says it's in the Mount of Olives. So... Yeah, it's uh, it's a different it's a different name, but it's obviously the same the same place. Uh, there are a number of different things that the the others uh, that these, the different contexts that the others give or, or details anyway. Um, one is uh, 
Judith. Well, the, one, the first one you've already mentioned, so that it's the name of, of the place. But the other is Judith. Uh, so Judith arrives with this band of soldiers, as it says. Uh, but in all of the other ones, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Judas kisses Jesus, uh, and that's the sign. Uh, unless I'm missing it, I don't think that I've been looking over it, uh, Judas doesn't kiss Jesus. So that, that's an interesting thing. Yeah. Um, and then, so then they have this I am he that then causes them to fall down. That's not mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's only mentioned in John's account. Uh, and then you also have the... The other three mention that one of the disciples uh, grabbed his sword and cut off uh, a high priest servant's ear, but John names, they don't name which disciple, and they don't name the high priest servant. Uh, and I don't think the others say the right ear, I think they just say ear. Uh, but John names Peter as the culprit, and uh Malchus as the servant, and he mentions the right ear. He doesn't mention, Luke's the only one who mentions that Jesus heals the ear. So John makes the same decision as Matthew and Mark to just not mention that detail. Uh, so having these different details doesn't cause troubles. Actually, it's, it's, because of that, it's actually convinced a lot of people that the Gospels are historical by the fact that they have these differing uh, points of view, because they're not contradicting each other, they're just giving different details. So, you know, if you have three kids, and they get in a squabble, and you have them come over and, and tell you what happened, they all give, you know, different details, right? And, or if you have people witness a car accident or witness a crime, and then the police bring them in for questioning privately, they're going to, uh, Maybe they, they can, without contradicting each other, give different details. Right. So that's what we're, we're having here. But it is interesting. John makes a big point uh, of that he's an eyewitness to these things. So we see that after uh, Jesus is stabbed with the spear and the water and the blood comes out, and he says, you know, he who uh, has borne witness, uh, his testimony, he who saw has borne witness, and his testimony is true. So John's giving details like yeah that man the disciple who cut off the ear was peter and the the, the guy's name was malchus yeah. and it was his right ear but interesting uh, how john gives these details that i mean anyone you think the gospel were written usually people think that uh, or at least conservative christians as we are uh, believe that matthew mark and luke would have been written earlier uh perhaps in the 50s or something like that and John's gospel would have been later, maybe 90 AD. So uh, maybe perhaps John knows what Matthew, Mark, and Luke have written. He says, okay, here's some details that uh, they did mention, but I know sounds there. Hmm. And, and as you said, some of those details certainly give credence to what John says later, that he is an eyewitness, that it is the right ear. He knows the servant's name. He knows it was Simon Peter, all of that supports what John says later, that he saw all these things happen. These are things that you wouldn't have written unless you were there. So that, that's certainly part of it. And then I, I think some of the other things that you mentioned in terms of things that either John says that the others don't, or that the others say but John doesn't, those things often indicate the, the, maybe the point that the individual evangelist might be trying to get across. 
And so it, it, it is helpful, I think, for us to consider the accounts together and to understand at least how they, they may fit together in terms of their order as we've been talking about. But it's also helpful for us to, to think about, okay, well, how is John recording this? And what is that intended to teach me about Jesus? And so I think as, as we think about some of those things that, that you've brought out, what are the, the details that John gives us that aren't recorded by the other evangelists? What does John leave out that the other evangelists do record? How does that teach us more things about Jesus? I think that's maybe one way that we can approach this text. So with, with that in mind, let, let's just talk about one of the things you already mentioned, the, the fact that Judas doesn't kiss Jesus in John's Gospel. Again, we know that, that Judas does betray the Lord with a kiss, but, but he doesn't record it for us here. I'm curious what your thoughts are. As I was reading this, again, that stood out to me that, oh, hey, John doesn't say Judas kissed Jesus. As I was reading through it, the, the thing that I think that supports is the willingness of Jesus to go forward in his passion and the way that he really is, is taking charge. He's not doing this as a victim of Judas, but rather he's going to his passion, what, as he says in verse 11, to drink the cup the Father has given. He's doing this on purpose as the one who's in control. I think leaving Judas's kiss out just helps support that theme. Yeah, right. So it doesn't exonerate Judas in any way. And what Judas does is, is very wicked. I mean, he he brings armed men uh, to arrest Jesus. Uh, it, he brings, so the ESV calls it a band of soldiers. The Greek says spera, which is a cohort, which is a, supposedly a tenth of part of a legion. So I always thought a legion was 2,000 soldiers, so a cohort was 200. So, I mean, I've heard people say that it wasn't that many soldiers, but it kind of sounds like that's what it was. Mm. But you talk about a huge group of, of soldiers. Uh, and then uh, they obviously want to do him harm. And then he betrays the trust, and this is a place where he was invited to come with Jesus with his other disciples many times, and he uses that as an opportunity. I mean, it's like someone who comes and uh, worships with you and then knows where in what time you have worship, and then uses that to tell someone who's doing violence against you what time you are normally at church or at home or wherever you are. It's a very wicked thing. But you're right. Uh, God doesn't need Judas to do this. Uh, he's able to take turn, use the wicked deed for good, but uh, he doesn't need Judas. So, And it's also interesting how you said, you point out in verse 11, that Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Well, Jesus mentions the mm. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Yeah. He says to the Father, if it is your will, if it is possible, take the cup away, but not my will, but yours be done. John, as we mentioned earlier, he skips over all that. But then here he does mention the cup. Good point. Uh, right. But the, I mean, this is a theme throughout all of, all of uh, Scripture, all of, of John. So in John chapter 10, you know, we've, Jesus is the, the good shepherd. What does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then he says, uh, I do not... There, I can read it. Uh, he says, uh, nobody takes it from me. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. That's John 10, 18. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And then we see this throughout this narrative that we just read uh he he says i am he and they fall down uh and then and then they bind him 
which is funny. So they bind him uh, when he clearly has shown that he has the power to make them fall down at his word. And then they bind him as if they, that can actually do anything. Uh, also, this isn't the first time that, that these people have come to try to arrest them. Now, maybe they're different people, but they're the same group. Uh, in John chapter 7, uh, the, see here, the, the Jews or the Pharisees, let me still check here, the Pharisees, the chief pretend Pharisees, so the same group. So they sent officers to go and arrest Jesus. And then the officers returned to them and they said, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. So they had already sent someone to go and arrest him or, or sent uh, officers to go and arrest him. And they failed to do it because Jesus was preaching to them. His word was too powerful and they couldn't bring themselves to do it. And of course, there are lots of other examples of scripture where one time they tried to throw him uh, off a cliff and he just disappeared. They pick up stones. And Jesus' response is just, uh, well, you know, why, for what good work are you going to stone me? But Jesus never shows concern about the bodily harm that they can do to him. So everything he does, he does uh, out of, uh, he, does, he does willingly, as he says in John 10. And other Gospels show this too, like in, in Matthew 7, or not Matthew 7, but in, Matthew, in Matthew's Gospel, uh, the, the Jews meet, so like the chief priests and such, and they say, you know, we're going to arrest Jesus, but not during the, the, the feast, lest there be a riot among the people. And then Jesus said, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered over. So Jesus said, yeah, whatever you guys plan, no, you're going to arrest me during the feast, and there is going to be a riot. Uh, Caiaphas. Uh, he's the one that mentions that he's the one who uh, ad advised them that expedient that one man should die for the people. Well, that happened in John, is that John 11 or John 12? It's after, it's after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, and, and then, oh yeah, it's in, it's in John 11. Yeah. And then Caiaphas says, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. And it says he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also together into one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So Caiaphas is in control. They bring him to Caiaphas. Uh, John, again, mentions that he's the one who prophesied this. And again, what this shows is that God's word is powerful, even when spoken uh, by wicked people, which is what the church has always said and what our Lutheran confessions say. So God has been in control this whole time. Jesus uh, is not sweating because he's worried about what man can do to him. That's not saying that he's about to do it easy. He's sweating drops of blood. His soul is in anguish unto death. He did pray to his father that if it is possible, take this cup away. Uh, it's a very harsh thing. But he, he's not doing this unwillingly. Although he is bound, he's going as a, as a lamb to the slaughter uh, with his mouth closed and without, uh, without refusing. You mentioned earlier, Pastor Preuss, that none of this exonerates Judas from what he does. The fact that Jesus goes willingly, he goes as the one who is in, fact in control of the situation, that does not excuse Judas's actions. Talk more about the wickedness of Judas that's on display. I suppose 
it's it comes to its fruition here, but we've seen it throughout. Talk more about that wickedness of Judas. Well, Judas, if you... Jesus did choose Judas. So at one point, Judas believed. Uh, and uh, the Psalms say that uh, refers to, you know, prophesying of Judas, that they used to take, be counseled together. And uh, the psalmist says, you know, if it were an enemy, it wouldn't be so bad, but it is you, my brother, my equal. So I, I do believe that at one point Judas loved Jesus, which is kind of shown in that he does uh, regret what he did, although he doesn't have a true repentance. Uh, I mean, he repented in the sense that he re- regretted what he did, but he doesn't actually have faith. Uh, but uh, Judas clearly suffers from greed. Uh, it is said that he feels he would steal from their treasury, which was provided out of the means of people who believed in the divinity of Jesus. Uh, so it's kind of like those horror stories of, of like treasures stealing uh, from the church's coffers or, or you know, things like that. Uh, although, I mean, uh, a lot of there are people who've done that who've also repented and been saved. Uh, and uh, he's the one who gets mad at Mary when she, you know, uses that expensive perfume to wash Jesus' feet. Talks about how this could be given to the poor. Of course, it's just because he actually wants to steal it. He doesn't care about the poor. Uh, he's he, he shows that he has trouble before. Uh, also, it says John's Gospel says that Satan enters him. So he's under the control of Satan. Uh, but this event, I mean, he's going to betray Jesus with a kiss, which is also, I mean, John doesn't mention the kiss, but he does mention that relationship. In the other Gospels, Judas kisses him, and Jesus says he betrayed instead of man with a kiss. But what does John say, though? He says that Judas also knew this place because Jesus would bring his disciples. What does Jesus call his disciples? His friends. So what's a friend? And what is kiss in Greek? Isn't it kata phileo? So it's... Uh, He's, he, Judas knows of that place because he is his friend. And, uh, and the, other, the other Gospels point out that Jesus does what a friend does. He kisses uh, to betray him. So Judas uses the knowledge of a friend to betray him. Uh, they bring a very large group. Uh, why do they bring such a large group? I think it's a large group. I don't see how... I mean, I, I guess maybe these words... You know, other people know more than I do. So when, when guys with PhDs say that uh, it wasn't a big group. I'm like, okay, well, maybe you're right, but I'm still not convinced because Sarah means cohort. But anyway, he brings armed soldiers to take Jesus. I mean, this is a violent thing to do to a man who has literally never harmed anyone. Mm. Uh, he is he's gentle and lowly, and Jesus brings them. And then, and so then also when Jesus, when, when Judas regrets it later, then he goes and uh, tries to return the money to go to the kings himself. Well, what did he think they were going to do? Like, just question him and then let him go? I mean, he obviously knows that they're going to kill him, and he doesn't care. And he does this for 30 pieces of gold. Uh, he does it for filthy lucre. So, uh, Judas's sin is, is incredibly evil. Uh, he, it is something that only an unbeliever would do. And sadly, he does not repent afterward meaning he doesn't have faith that he can be forgiven. Um, and Jesus, of course, says it would be better for him if he would never have been born. So it's, I mean, it's a very tragic uh, 
situation. It's a great warning. I think it's also something for uh, pastors uh, to consider, too, uh, that even Jesus, one of his disciples, uh, betrayed him and left. So you're, you're going to have people who are going to abandon the faith for all sorts of stupid reasons, like very pieces of silver. Talk more about that, that group of soldiers that comes. As you, as you said, it, it does seem from the text that this is a rather large group. I suppose just the, the picture in my mind, you know, you've got the disciples there with Jesus, at least initially. They're going to, to leave, we know. But it, it, I mean, you've got, on the one hand, this really large group of soldiers basically against this one man who, who we know means no harm. So it's quite the contrast. The other thing that I, I guess maybe, I don't know if I just hadn't noticed this before or not, but it does seem from John's language especially that there are both Romans there, so you've got the, the band of soldiers, I think that's what you've been talking about, but then also some officers from the chief priests of the Pharisees, so more of yeah. the, the temple guard. So it seems you've got a, a mixed group of soldiers, Jews and Romans together, all, again, coming against this one man, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it mentions the assistance of the, of the chief priests. Uh, it, it seems like a very large crowd. And then the Romans, whether they're actual Roman citizens or just soldiers hired, uh, you know, being paid by from the Roman coffers or, or hired from the chief priests. I'm not sure how all that works. Uh, they have torches. Well, that's the other thing, too. So, like, what's Judas' whole point? So I talked about how evil it is that he did this. But what did he actually do? He, he's going to identify him. Well, why don't they know who he is? Hmm. Well, there are a number of thoughts on that. One is, although Jesus does preach to many people, uh, you know, they don't have pictures at that time. Have, perhaps these people actually haven't heard Jesus speak. Perhaps they haven't been close up to him, so they would be able to recognize his face. Also, they don't know where he's going to be. The Judas knows where he's going to be. The other thing is that that night, so maybe it's not going to be clear who he is, but Judas is going to be helpful in that. Uh, one of the, you've been using this source of ancient Christian commentary or scripture, so it gives you a little paragraphs of different church fathers and one of them I was reading uh we're talking about how like judas didn't recognize uh jesus and how so they all get there and it mentions how judas is there but judas doesn't even do what he's supposed to do uh, so if you if you were to you know uh, harmonize the gospels when judas by the time judas kisses jesus i mean jesus has already told them who he is uh, but and then why doesn't Jesus say this is Jesus? Like why does he? Uh, why do, why do they? Jesus says, "Who do you seek?" And then they answer, "Jesus of Nazareth." Like why doesn't Judas speak up there? Well, this is who we we're seeking you. Uh, so it's this idea that that uh, that oh, it was Christus that said that that uh, even Judas doesn't recognize Jesus. So they bring these torches to give themselves light. And yet they, they have no true light. Yeah. Um, and then another one uh, talked about how they bring light. Like, why do they bring all these torches? Well, so that they don't fall into a pit. You know, so that they don't twist their ankle, you know, on a root or something like that. Well, they don't realize that they're going into the bowels of hell with this wickedness that they're, that they're doing. Um, so it's, I mean, Jesus is in complete control. Uh, and, uh, and, and you have these very, very violent people who are coming, but, Jesus is able to knock them down at the word. In Matthew's gospel, he says that he had 12 legions of soldiers. So, okay, so that would be 120 times as many angels 
as uh, as the soldiers who came to arrest him come and help them. Mm. Uh, so it's uh, yeah, it's Jesus is gentle and these people are are, are brute, but yeah, yeah, Jesus was willing with. Yeah, and what you said about the the fact that they got all these torches, I think, really fits nicely with themes that John has developed already throughout his gospel about Jesus being the light of the world. What does it mean to walk in light or in darkness? And although these men have that light source with them, they are actually walking in the darkness. We're going to keep looking at this text more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking with Pastor James Price this morning about John chapter 18. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, March 31st. We're studying John chapter 18, verses 1 to 14 with Pastor James Preuss. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, we've been looking at this opening account of the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John and looking at the various details that he gives us that are not always recorded in the Synoptic Gospels for us. One of those, is, as you pointed out, is just the way that this opening scene goes Judas doesn't give the kiss that identifies Jesus. In fact, Jesus is the one who initiates the conversation. He says, whom do you seek? They answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus then says, I am he, as it's translated in the SV. And they all then draw back and fall to the ground. And this, these words of Jesus, I am he, they get repeated in multiple places, so they must be important. Talk more about the way that this interaction goes. What do we learn about Jesus from this interaction? Right. Well, those who've been listening to this uh, program for the last several weeks, you'll remember the I am statement. We have like, I am the vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am uh, the, the good shepherd. I am the door. Uh, I am the resurrection and the life. The, the, the I am statements are very significant in the book of John. And it, they, they are always declaring that Jesus is God. So in Exodus, when Moses asks God, uh, whom shall I say uh, sent me? When the people say, like, what is your name? What should I say? And God says, I am who I am. Uh, go tell the, the, the people that I am has sent you. So then they call him, he is, uh, which in uh Hebrew is Yahweh or Yahweh. Um, so that's, that's where that name comes from. It's translated in our English Bibles as Lord in the Old Testament, all capital letters. Uh, and that is actually a very ancient tradition. The Septuagint translates Yahweh or Yahweh or Jehovah as Lord, as Kyrios. And uh, the New Testament does it too. So in the New Testament, when uh, the name of the Lord is brought up as, as a quote from the Old Testament. 
it uses curia. So we often will miss that, but it is important that we do recognize that uh, God's name that he reveals to himself as is, he is. And when he says his name, he says, I am. So the people of Israel are so afraid of using the name he is that they call him Adonai, which is Hebrew for Lord, and then uh, in all the other subsequent uh, languages, they call him uh, Lord, and we and we do that today too. I, mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think that we have to always call him Yahweh, although I don't. We shouldn't be afraid of using that title Yahweh. It's our word, our name to give our God, whom we have received through faith. Uh, so anyway, so what Jesus is doing, uh, he, he's he's using language that is superfluous grammatically, but it is uh, absolutely necessary theologically. So that means the superfluous means that it's more than needed. It's, it's not necessary. You don't have to say ego a me, which is Greek for I am. Uh, you could uh, you could use Say like Amy, uh, you know, which is just the verb, and then people would understand what he's saying. So he says, "Ego Amy, uh, I am." So while it is possible to interpret this to say, "Well, he's just lip, he's just saying I am He," his words mean much more. The fact that they fall back and then are on the ground, they fall to the ground, uh, shows that. Uh, that this is a, a very significant thing that Jesus is saying. And when you look at other translations, that can be fun. Uh, and one translation, which is interesting, my brother pointed this out to me, because uh, I'll look at other different you know, parallel passages uh, or uh, different translations, but uh, I'll have to give my brother credit for it. Uh, although I, I didn't name him, so it's up to you to get But he, he told me about uh, the Aramaic, what's, in it, what's the title of it? Aramaic Bible in plain English, which is an English translation of the Peshitta Bible, uh, which is a Syriac uh, translation of the Bible. The so Syriac uh, being uh, an Aramaic dialect uh, uh, of uh, which in Aramaic is what Jesus would speak. Now, that, that kind of brings up the top because they'll, they'll translate Jesus as Yeshua because they say that's his in Aramaic, which is probably true. Although, when you get these English speakers who insist on calling Jesus Yeshua, it's, it's a little bit rich, because Jesus in the New Testament, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit in Greek, he's called Jesus. So, no, we don't have to call Jesus Yeshua. Uh, we can call him Jesus. The Bible is very clear uh, that we don't have to be speaking Aramaic and, and things like that. And the New Testament wasn't written in Aramaic. Anyway, all that being said, John 18, verse 5, this is how they translate it. They were saying to him, Yeshua, or they were saying to him, Yeshua of Nazarene. Yeshua said to them, I am the living God. Uh, but Yehuda, the traitor, was also standing with them. Uh, and when Yeshua said to them, I am the living God, they went backward and fell to the ground. And uh, Yeshua said again, whom are you speaking? They, but they said, Yeshua, the, uh, the Nazarene, Yeshua said to them, 
I have told you that I am the living God. And if you speak to me, let them go. So that's an interesting thing that they translate, I am the living God. I, I don't know Aramaic. Uh, I know a little bit of Hebrew. I was able to find uh, the text of the Ashisha Bible on, online, um, and I can't understand the, the script. So then I looked at an Aramaic uh, uh, transliteration of it because Aramaic, or a, a Hebrew transliteration of it because Hebrew and Aramaic are similar. And uh, I, I don't think that that's actually what it said. But uh, I think it just says, I am he. But they translate it, or I am. So they translate it, uh, I am the living God. Theologically, they're right. Um, I don't know if that's what people would have understood when they heard it. I don't know if they knew why they fell down. I think they, were, they fell down uh, because the, of Jesus' words, obviously. But I don't, I don't know that they actually understood what Jesus was saying. But it is absolutely true that that is what Jesus meant. He said, I am. He was communicating, I am the living God. What's remarkable about all of that is then the context in which Jesus says that here. I mean, as you pointed out, throughout this series, we've seen Jesus use this language, I am the bread of life, or I am the true vine, or I am the good shepherd, all along telling us, that he is, in fact, the God of the Old Testament, and then telling us more about himself as that. But now he uses that same language in the context of his upcoming passion and death. And especially with that particular translation that you're mentioning, I am the living God, how striking then that the one who is the living God is about to go to his death. And, and I also, in, I, as you were talking, I, I was noticing, the, the, again, the question that Jesus asks before he even says, I am, is whom do you seek? And that is very close to the very first words that we heard Jesus speak in John's Gospel. In John 1.38, those are the first words that John the Evangelist records for us from Jesus, and there he asks two of John's, John the Baptist's disciples, he asks them, what are you seeking? Almost the same thing. There it was, what are you seeking? Here it is, whom are you seeking? But it, it's quite striking that now we're actually about to find out who this one that's been, you know, was sought in the very beginning, we're about to find out what he's really like here. And again, you, you have to see him as he goes to his death to understand who this one really is that we've been learning about all along in the gospel. Yeah. No, that's a very good point. Uh, uh, yeah, they said, come and you will. They, they say, uh, where are you staying? Rabbi, where are you staying? Come and you will see. Yeah. And they will see much more than that. They're going to, well, later he says, you'll see heaven opened, and he says it's, a, it's a, in Daniel, uh, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So him saying, I am, you know, the living God, is uh, he's getting closer yeah, to that. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, and we're about to learn what it is that they're seeking, or what you should be seeking from Jesus. Yeah. Sorry, keep going. But that, again, that, that translation, for those who are interested, Aramaic Bible in plain English, and it is the English translation of the Peshitta <clears throat> Holy Bible. Uh, and uh, you can find it online. I mean, I don't know who's going to be able to read it uh, because the script looks like Aramaic, so I can't read it. But uh, according to uh, Wikipedia, Peshitta is derived from the Syriac, which uh, is a simple version or uh, common. And uh, Syriac is a dialect or a group of dialects that's in Aramaic originally from Odessa. Is written in the Syriac alphabet. Uh, 
so I can't I can't read myself. But but uh, anyway, I thought I I found it really when my brother first told me about it. I thought that was really interesting, and then uh, read it myself. I don't know. I mean, it's it's true. It's theologically true that it's definitely what Jesus was communicating, but. It, 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 it is a paraphrase of what he actually said. He said, uh, the, in the Greek, it says, echo amy. Right, right. Yeah, so I am the living God. That is a good interpretation of what Jesus means when he says, ego ami, I am he. He is saying that he is the God of the Old Testament, as he's been saying all along throughout the Gospel. Now that, again, those words of Jesus get repeated, not only from his own lips, but then John the Evangelist mentions them again when Jesus had said to them, I am he. And then Jesus, in repeating his answer, says, I told you that I am he. So we actually get those words, ego me, three times in this text. As the interaction continues there in verse 8, Jesus uses this time to say, let these men go, these other ones with me. And then John the Evangelist says, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Talk about that aspect, the fulfilling of Jesus' words here. Yeah, absolutely. First, I just want to back up to what you just said. Uh, the, our English translation says that he says, I am he, I am he, I am he. Right. But he actually, ego me is I am. Right. So it, it is literally what the Lord said to Moses from the burning bush. But yeah, that's a, a, a good question. So Jesus says uh, that he has not lost not one. This is to fulfill what Jesus said, that he has not uh, lost not one. Um, What's really neat about this is when you read through the Gospels, it, it frequently says, this is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. This is to fulfill, but, but so that Scripture may be fulfilled, or some variation of that is talking about Scripture being fulfilled. What's neat about this is it says, uh, this was to uh, fulfill, let's see here, where are we? Uh, in verse 9, this yes. was to fulfill okay. the word that he had spoken. The word that he had spoken. So, uh, I mean, it's written in Scripture now for us. I mean, it's, that's verse 17, 12. Okay. Uh, but he's, he, he, it says that he's, not lost, he's lost not one except for the son of destruction. Uh, but he's talking about his word, the words that he had spoken. So Jesus' words are fulfilled just as Scripture is fulfilled. Scripture is God's word. Uh, the, the memory work passage I'm working on with my children is Second uh, Timothy three sixteen and seventeen, where it says all Scripture is uh, the New King James says given by inspiration of God. Uh, is, I mean, it's a, a literal translation would be that it is God breathed. Well, I mean, you know, the, the, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. So the uh, God breathes means it's God's word. The scripture is God's word. It's something we defend, you know, very vigorously. Uh, scripture is God's word. The Bible is God's word. Jesus' word is on par with scripture. Uh, it is God's word. So whenever Jesus speaks, he's going to be fulfilled, just as all scripture is fulfilled in him. Uh, so I, I, I think that's a very important thing to uh, remember, this, this, so now, okay, so it is God's Word, but what's being fulfilled, actually? And it's an interesting thing, because he says, of those whom you give me, I have lost not one. Um, 
but aren't like don't like all of his disciples get killed so they'll get killed today so i mean it's a, it's a neat thing because he's saying uh, i'm the only one who's going to go and be crucified right now you're not going to die for the sins of the world i mean he's he's crucified with two thieves but that's just say that he's numbered with the transgressors but he's the only one of his disciples who's going to go and die for for us peter did not die for our sins uh john and and uh james did not die for our sins but they all did take up their cross and follow him. Uh, so you have that. What's also interesting about this, I mean, this isn't talking about just simply, I mean, it is talking about the, the fact that their lives were spared that night. But he's talking about something much more significant, and that's their eternal election, as Jesus' <laughs> prayer, as priestly prayer makes clear. So that's the thing that Augustine points out. He's saying that, yeah, he, he is talking about their life being spared that night, He's talking about their eternal election, that God chose them beforehand, and they're not going to be lost. So this little event right here, it was a major event, but in the sense that they weren't arrested that night. Well, but they were arrested another night. Uh, Jesus says, when you can say in the few chapters from now, you know, when you're older, you're, someone else is going to uh, gird your belt and lead you to a place where you don't want to go. Uh, so I mean, they're spared for a night, and their death is postponed. So the greater significance of this passage is the fact that they are chosen. And if you are, this is where election is gospel. Why don't we believe in double predestination? Uh, for two reasons. One, the Bible doesn't teach it. And two, because the election is gospel, not law. Uh, and uh, it's something that we can take comfort in, that God chose you before the foundation of the world, and Jesus did not lose any, except for the ones for whom Scripture was fulfilled. Pastor Price, you mentioned earlier in our conversation in verse 11 that as Jesus responds to Peter, who has cut off the right ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, Jesus uses these words, put your sword into its sheath, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me, that has the Father has given me? So you you mentioned that that language of of the cup comes from the prayer that Jesus spoke in the Garden of Gethsemane, as re, is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Talk to us. What does Jesus mean about drinking the cup? What does that language indicate? Well, I've always understood as the cup of woe and dread. I mean, this is the cup of punishment. Uh, it's a language that's used in Scripture. Uh, Jeremiah speaks of it. He's going to force uh, Israel to drink uh, to the dregs, you know, this, a, a cup of, of bitterness and, and woe. Uh, so Jesus is going to drink the guilt, the punishment, the shame of all mankind. Uh, so it's talking about the cross, but it's something that's more than just simply what we see. I mean, if you lived in, I don't know what years, exact year Jesus was crucified because they say that he's actually born before 6 AD or BC. So it would have been what, around uh, 27 PD or something like that. So let's say, you know, you and I had a time machine. We went to, to Jerusalem in 27 AD and we could see Jesus be crucified just as other people did. But we wouldn't actually see with our eyes all that is actually going on for our salvation. Uh, I mean, there's a spiritual sacrifice that goes along with this physical sacrifice. And we see that in the, in, in, by, the, by the fact that Jesus said, 
uh, I am in anguish to the point, my soul is in anguish to the point of death. The fact that he is sweating drops of blood uh, that John the Baptist says, be with the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he, he carries them, he's carrying them up. Uh, so there's this spiritual uh, sacrifice. Uh, Isaiah says, uh, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that's what this cup is about. Uh, it's mentioned by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's passed over in John. Uh, it would have happened between verses 1 and 2 of John chapter 18. Uh, it's also interesting that how Jesus tells Peter to put the sword in its sheath. Um, I'm doing a Bible, a Sunday morning Bible study on First and Second Samuel. We're in Second Samuel right now. We'll go through First and Second Samuel. So a, a lot of fun, and it's fun to also find Jesus there. And David, of course, is the type of Christ. And it's amazing how many times David tells his Peter, his uh, you know right hand men, uh, to put their swords away. Mm -hmm. Don't kill Saul. Again, don't kill Saul. Again, why'd you kill Abner? Uh, don't kill, you know, constantly saying, don't kill, don't kill, don't kill, put the sword away. But why does he do that? Because he trusts that the Lord is going to vindicate him, and the Lord is going to rescue him. So Jesus, on the one hand, prays to the Father, if it is possible, take this couple away. In other words, if it is possible to save mankind without me being tormented for their sins, let it be Yes, not my will, but yours be done. And then he's going. And then he very clearly now knows I'm going to have to take this cup. The betrayer has come. Everything's going as the Father has planned, uh, and I'm not afraid to do it because I know I'm going to rise from the dead. Uh, this must be done. So it's an interesting thing. I mean, he prays to the Father, if it is possible, take this cup away. And then Peter. Is pretty much saying, oh, it's possible. Let's take this cup away. I think Jesus says, no, I have to drink the cup because otherwise the Father would have, you know, sent angels or something. Uh, but he's not going to have you do it. Uh, so that's what I see anyway. Mm, yeah, again, Jesus goes willingly to his passion to lay his life down for his sheep as our good shepherd. The last three verses, then verses 12 to 14, Give some, some transitional information. Jesus now is arrested, he's bound, and they're going to take him to Annas and to Caiaphas for his trial, which we will get in the next text here. John's going to kind of go a little bit back and forth after this between Peter and the way he's acting and the trial of Jesus as the text progresses. We just get the setup here in verses 12 to 14. Got about four minutes on the morning, Pastor Price. Give us any information from those verses that we need to know and help us to wrap things up on this text today. Right. Uh, well, it's an interesting thing because the other uh, synoptic gospels say that they bring him to Caiaphas. Here, they say they lead him to Annas, who is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Uh, it shows that there is some corruption in how the chief priest uh, office is carried out, because the chief priest is supposed to be a descendant of Aaron, and he's supposed to have a lifetime appointment. But here, you're having these different appointments. Uh, and uh, from what I've read, what happened was you actually had the government uh, removing these priests and permitting others. So you have these, these uh, compromises of having certain people being uh, chief priests. So from, from what I remember, 
Caiaphas is the high priest, but Annas is actually more influential among the people. Um, but Caiaphas, as I mentioned earlier, is the one who prophesied, uh, because being high priest, he prophesied that it's better for one person to die for the people. But then John expands, saying, and not only for the people, for, but for all the children of God, but for all, all people, so that he can bring uh, the children of God from, from everywhere. Uh, and uh, so he, these are wicked men who, by whom God speaks. So Jesus says, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat to do as they say, but not as they do. And I think that's something that people can, uh, can take from it in this time of so many false preachers. You know, we, there are Christians in heterodox church bodies because there still is the word of God spoken there. Also, if you have a pastor who has denied the faith or is a hypocrite or anything like that, you don't have to question your baptism because asking baptize you was unfaithful or question the Lord's Supper or the absolution or the gospel that was spoken. God's able to speak even by through Caiaphas, who was very evil. Um so yes, yeah, so we have so we have that message of the, the efficacy of God's word being true even when people are uh, who speak it are evil. Uh, also, just I mean the fact that they bind him to carry him away. It's kind of like I mean you, you think of Abraham binding Isaac, uh, Isaac who just carried a big load of wood up a mountain. Abraham who's an old man obviously isn't strong enough, and then he. He binds him. And Jesus clearly is letting him do it. It's almost like when a father lets children, you know, wrap a yarn around his, his wrist and then they like are, you know, playing pretend, like arresting him. And obviously the father can just, you know, tear the yarn or, or paper handcuffs or whatever they're doing. But he's playing along with his children. Obviously this isn't play. This is a very serious thing. Uh, but there's no doubt that Jesus is going willingly to this. Caiaphas is not in control. Even the words he speaks are not his own words. Uh, Jesus is the one who, as he said back in John chapter 10, he lays his life down of his own accord. He has authority to lay it down, and he has authority to raise it up again. And that is the charge that he has received from his father, just as he said that he must drink the cup that his father has given. Pastor James Preuss is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa. He's been helping us today to study John chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. Pastor Preuss, thanks for being our guest today. Hey, thank you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John, please send us an email. Send that email to kfuo at kfuo.org. You can also use the app to leave a message for us using the open mic feature. Either way, it is always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.